I don't know if I'm an involuntary volunteer here, but <laughs> I love the Lord, and it's a special time, a very special time. And I anticipated this when I seen this in the newspaper, and I've been in this church many times, and the Lord's ministered to me here and many others, I know that. So with that, we just come before you, Father, in the precious name of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ our Redeemer. We're not here to get our ears tickled, Lord. We're here to hear your word, the living word, the word that's alive. And Lord, we want that word to be quickened within us. You bless your servant as he brings forth the word. Lord, that we can apply it, each one of us, to our lives today and be quickened and be aware of those angels, Lord, and commission them to do what the Lord has commissioned to them them to do and that's to minister to the heirs of salvation and that's us increase that knowledge in us lord let us know how to apply it and use it in our everyday life to your glory and amen okay good morning uh before we get started this morning i want to pass something out to you this is called the spiritual counterfeits project journal uh, <clears throat> they have been in existence approximately um, since about 1970, 71. Uh, I became a Christian in 71, and somehow, uh, by the grace of God, I found out about this group, and I've been getting their journals and their information ever since. Uh, why I bring this up is, what they do is analyze uh, from inside the Christian faith all of the various movements and widely divergent beliefs that exist in our culture today, which you can find out if you go on Google and type religion.alt. What's alt stand for? Alternative. Alternative, yes. And so what they, you know, because we live in a primarily Christianized culture, whether we're all Christian or not, it doesn't matter, but it, Christianity is the mainstream viewpoint in terms of religiosity and spirituality. Alt stands for everything other than Christian faith, sometimes even dipping into the Christian faith and then spinning something that's new and different over here on the side. This group, I think, is the premier uh, analysis group in terms of spiritual diagnost diagnostics in the country. And my friend right there that came up to me, she asked me about her friend who is interested in the Nephilim. Does anyone remember what the Nephilim is about? We talked about it just briefly, I think a couple weeks ago, or angels that purportedly what? Well, they're actually the offspring, supposedly, of yes, angels who intermated uh, with women, humans, and purportedly produced this class of creatures called Nephilim. They're mentioned in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 6, they're mentioned in the book of Joshua, and then that's it. That's the only thing that's in the Bible about Nephilim. And I told you that if you wanted a one-page study on this, that you could write to Cindy, who's right here, Cindy Friley, and she will send this one-page study to you, which gives my conclusion on it. Not that you know I'm saying that I'm absolutely right, but you can see the reasoning for one view of the Nephilim. Well, anyways, so I brought this today just for the heck of it, and it turns out that uh, it's going to be helpful to her. I'm going to pass this around if you want to. Uh, there is a phone number, actually, that you can call, or you can just get on their mailing list. Uh, they have their uh, website listed here on the front page and the phone number on the back. You might be interested in just looking at some of their stuff. They have journals going back 30, 40 years of, on every topic under the sun including lots of stuff about aliens and angels and all of these kinds of topics that people are so entranced with t today. And they're a very, very Christ-centered group. They analyze everything from uh, a Christocentric point of view. And also, they're not judgmental. That's the thing, the reason that I like them so much. They're not condemnatory. They don't speak um, down to people that they're trying to assist and help. So you might find this interesting. I'll pass it around. Take the address down if you want it. And 
look into it. All right. Our topic, angels. And you remember from last week, what was the uh, illustration that I used to illustrate the model or the way that we were going to look at this topic? The prism. And what does the prism stand for? The Bible. What's the light that shines through the prism? God or the light of Christ. And what the Bible does is refract the rays, the pure light of Jesus into all these different topics that we care about on every subject. And the one that we care about for this course is angels, so we're looking at angels from a Christocentric point of view. Uh, if you took um, a seminary course, you, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but you can actually take a full-blown course in seminary or some uh, religious institutions on angelology. Did you, are you aware of this? So you can take a whole course on this. You can also take a whole course on demonology, which is uh, a whole course on the study of fallen angels, some courses even on satanology. So, you know, religious professors have to have something to do Right? So they just multiply these courses out. And so we're hitting, obviously, uh, the high points, and we're not doing it in the traditional linear Western way. I'm not starting at the beginning of the Bible and tracking through all of the references in the Bible to angels as if it was a separate topic. And does anyone remember why uh, I'm not doing that? Well, yes, we don't have enough time. I asked Dan if I could have until September, and he said no. (laughs) But what's the other reason? This I wish you to have in your heart. I think it's the truth. That anytime you look at any topic and you divorce it from a Christ-centered point of view, you're bound to reduce it and make it something that it really isn't because the Bible doesn't give us all this information on all these various topics so that we can study them independent and separate from the main theme and the main purpose of the Bible, which is what? Jesus. Christ. So everything that we want to know about, I believe that the best way to do it is to trace through the prism back to the light and then from the light through the prism. And if you keep those two together, then you will be much better grounded in the point and purpose of the Bible and also understand Christ better. So having said all of that, we remember last week we studied angels in the incarnation, which is from God's point of view, the central point of the Bible. Today, we do temptation. And how do angels, both evil and erect or unfallen, how do they play uh, a role in this whole notion of temptation? Now, this is a big topic. This is huge. And you can see this little document I gave you. Um, I really, you might say, wow, that's kind of strange getting a 17-page handout in Sunday school. Uh, Yeah, on one level, yes, but on another level, no, because this is a huge topic in the Bible. It's very important. It's pertinent to our everyday lives. It's pertinent to our Christian lives. And so I really took the time to lay out for you uh, some really central, essential information. Uh, In this document, what I try to do is show you, uh, number one, what does the Bible say about fallen angels? Uh, John, Peter, Paul, uh, the essence of the biblical teaching on Satan and fallen angels. Then I have a whole section in there in which I introduce you to the biggest names or the, the biggest scholars that have studied this topic and I, it, it starts on page um, uh, eight and it's called Three Modern Views on Satan the spectrum of, spectrum of Interpretations of Satan and the Demons now I go through three main lines of thought some scholars who actually think Satan and demons are uh, ontological. That was just a little angel messing around. (laughs) Trying to wake you guys up. (laughs) 
I show you two people, Jeffrey Burton Russell and Clinton Arnold, who have studied this topic down to the bone. Jeffrey Burton Russell uh, was a professor of uh, history at the University of uh, California. And uh, he wrote four books on Satan and traced it as a, what he calls it, the history of ideas premise. He's a historian. So he traces through the entire history of what everybody, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, everybody has said about Satan and demons and angels. Then I introduce you to another person, um, Walter Wink, who, and that starts a couple pages over, <coughs> um, I think on page, um, it's called View 2, page 13. <coughs> this is called the depersonalized view. Hey, have you ever gone to a, a sporting event or do you watch sporting events on TV? Uh, anybody watch basketball? You get down to like 17 seconds left in the game. And what's going on in the stadium, in the, in the, in, in the crowd? What? They're cheering in unison. What do we call that when that happens? Folly. <laughs> it's kind of team spirit, right? When we say team spirit, we don't think that there's actually a spirit of Duke, right? Even though they are the Blue Devils. But we don't actually think that there's actually real blue devils in the stands whipping the fans up, right? We just call it a spirit, team spirit. Well, this is what Walter Wink does with the Bible. He goes through the Bible and he says, look, demons and, and angels, they don't really exist for real. They are simply the, what, what the name that we put on them is the spirit that flows through human beings as they act in their negative and pathological ways. Yes, sir. Um, I hate to be ignorant, but I am. What is veridicinal? What page are you on? Same page you're on, but on the paragraph with Russell and uh, Arnold was. Oh, veridical? Oh, what's the, um, what's the motto of uh, Harvard? Veritas. What's veritas mean? Truth. Veridical is something that's really true. It's a belief that corresponds to a reality. If you have a non-veridical belief, it's sincerely held. You really believe it, but there's no corresponding reality attached to the belief. Can you give me an example? A belief that is not veridical. Santa Claus. Yeah, people honestly believe there is a creature called Santa Claus uh, until you get your bubble bust, busted. But Santa doesn't really believe, uh, exist, except in the movie Miracle on 34th Street. That refutes the entire thing, right? The, the thesis of Miracle on 34th Street is that, uh, what was his name? Um, Chris. Chris, uh, Chris. Kringle, yes. He was actually, Chris, he was the real Santa Claus. Do you think that Chris Kringle really lives and exists? In our hearts. In your heart. <laughs> That's great. In your heart but there's no reality attached to your sincere belief in your heart. Well, this is what some people think about Satan and demons. Walter Wink is an example. Yes, people believe that they really exist, but he says, no, they don't. They're simply labels that we slap on humans acting badly or, in, or humans acting well. Now, the third view is uh, a woman named Elaine Pagels. She's a, a preeminent New Testament scholar and she holds a similar view to, Pago, uh, to um, Wink, but what she does is say that Christians, early Christians, were the ones that demonized Jews for not believing in Jesus. So she turns the whole thing on its head and says all this stuff about angels and demons is really just an example of how one group, a.k.a. the Christians, demonized another group, a.k.a. the Jews, and so she's basically leveling, leveling, leveling a charge against all of the New Testament writers that they really just made all of this up and then slapped it on the Jews and made them look like the worst people of all time. Now, these are the preeminent scholars in the field. So you got view one, two, and three. One, they're veridical, they really exist. Two, they're simply the 
the spirit of humans acting badly. And three, Pagel's view, that it's a way that humans use power, social power, to control, marginalize, and even uh, sweep away certain groups of people. The easiest way to do it is what? To say these people are demonic. All right, now, yes, there's a lot of big words in here. Yes, you probably will have to crack out a dictionary. It won't kill you. Um, But I suggest that you really read this. Um, Not because I wrote it, but because it represents the fact that we live in the 21st century, and these are the views that are contending for people's hearts and minds when we pick up the Bible and the simple story of Matthew 4, which is the story about what? The temptation of Jesus. And so what's going on during the temptation of Jesus? Is this a myth? Is it actually happening? Is there a veridical phenomenon going on? Is Jesus really encountering the prince of darkness in the, in the wilderness? And so, you know, the answer to that question is going to depend on a lot of things, and it's also going to mean a lot consequentially for us as Christians. And here's where it really gets pertinent. The answer to that question is going to have a huge impact on each one of you. Because if it turns out that demons, Satan, uh, are actually in existence, if they really exist, then I'm going to show you today that the New Testament portrays their activities as being virtually identical to you as they were to Jesus. So this isn't just a story in a book about something that happened in a wilderness 2,000 years ago. This is actually a story that has great pertinence to each one of our lives. On the other hand, if it turns out that Satan and demons are simply some pre-scientific mythological belief and they don't really exist at all, then it would be just compounding confusion if the human race continues to go on and believe in these creatures as if we're actually fighting some cosmic war because Elaine Pagels would say, there's nobody out there to fight. Walter Wink would say, there's nobody out there to fight. Who is to fight? Who are you going to fight? Yourself. The pathology is in you and the pathology is in in the institutions that fallen human beings build, but there's no actually external force that's trying to corrupt us. So if you believe that, then it would make all the difference in the world about how you would live the Christian life and what you would do. And uh, Jesus is reported to have quoted scripture directly to Satan. If Walter Wink is correct, if Elaine Pagels is correct, if all these people are correct, then what Jesus is doing what? Basically talking to himself or talking to his own inner conflicts and externalizing those conflicts as if they were actually uh, a person. And then the talking that he's doing uh, is actually just kind of self-talk. Wow, that would make all the difference in the world in terms of how you understand and live the Christian life. So with that as an introduction, let's get cracking and look at the actual biblical account. And to do that, we need to go to Matthew 4 as our main text, however... I need to give you some introductory stuff, and that would be on page two of your handout. There's two charts, which is what I want to focus on today. (coughs) Well, let's make sure that everyone has one. Anybody else need one? There's, uh, Dr. Barrett needs one in the back, Todd. Good-looking old guy. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you two verses. Uh, first one is James 1.13, and we're going to compare that to Hebrews 4.15 through 16. This is crucial. This is huge. And uh, by the way, I'll just tell you right now, we're not going to be able to go through every one of these verses, so you've got the study guide. I'm going to have to give you, actually, the answers on some occasions. I hate to do that. I wish we could go patiently through it. But time will run away, and also you guys always have lots of questions, which is great. So I'm not going to stress about covering every verse. Sometimes I'll just tell you what they mean, and you can look them up later. So who's got James 1.13, and where's the mic? 
And there's the mic. Who would like to read this for us, please? I can. Okay, great. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Mm. Okay, what's this telling us? God never tempts us. And now, sometimes you'll see the Bible will say God tested, God tested Abraham. That's not a temptation. That's an arranged scenario designed so that the human can exercise their faith and grow. First of all, what do we know about God? If we accept the Bible in terms of God's qualities and attributes. Uh, All things... All things are true, yes, but how about what does God know? Omniscient. God knows all things. So when the Bible tests, when the Bible says God tests somebody, it's not so that God can find out what they will do. By the way, do you guys ever test people? (laughs) How about like when we hire somebody on probation? Right? That's... You're testing them. You're seeing if they can actually do what they are been, been hired to do. And in our social relationships, we frequently test people. Not meanly, but we hold reserve, we reserve judgment and we wait. And then we might, might even create a scenario to see how they function and how they operate. And if they function correctly, according to our light, then we'll say, okay, they passed the test. I'm going to trust this person. Now, God doesn't f- test humans to find out what they're going to do because God knows already what they're going to do. So then why, why does God test people? To give you a chance to do what? To, to, to step forward, to blossom, to grow, to take a step of faith and get closer to God. Now, temptation is something different. On the front cover, I gave you a definition of temptation. That's a solicitation to do evil. That is when somebody lays a scenario in front of another person, and in that scenario, there is evil that's to be experienced and held, always packaged, by the way, how? It's always masqueraded as a good thing. Um, And so then the, the, the point of the exercise is to get you and I to do something that is wrong or in violation of what God would want us to do. That's what temptation is. It's a solicitation to do evil. And testing is a solicitation to blossom, to expand, to get closer to God. Yes. So John, then why did Jesus teach us to pray to God, lead us not into temptation? Yeah, that's a great question. Lead us not into temptation. Is that for God or is that for you and me? Yes, you can. That's the old English translation, but if you look at the way other languages say that same phrase, okay. in Spanish, for instance, it's don't let us fall into temptation. So you keep us from falling. That's, that's obviously what Jesus means, however you translate it. Would you, and, and by the way, when you pray that on a repeated basis, it's supposed to reinforce within you, the person, what truth it's a reminder of what? That there, is that there is temptation? That we could fall? And it is designed to get us to be aware of the fact, don't lollygag your way through life on a Pollyanna cotton ball trip like everything is sweet and happy. There really is such a thing as temptation. And so when you pray, either don't let me fall or don't lead me into it, it's a backdoor way of asking God to do what? To keep, us from to, to keep me from temptations that would cause me to fall away from you, God. Yes, sir. The good thing about, about prayer is that as you go on, it gives you the way to get out, the hope of how to do it. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, sure. I mean, the master is giving you like a little spiritual warfare manual right there on how you should conduct yourself as a Christian. Right. But now we find out what about God, now that we've got that clarified. The one thing that we are told about God is what? 
God never tempts us to do evil. Never. Plus, what else is true about God? God is beyond temptation. God is impeccable, which is what that means. You can't tempt God. There's nothing that can be thrown into God's lap that God even resonates with if it's evil. God is beyond it. Wow. Now, go over here to the next passage that's in the middle column. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. What does this tell us about Jesus? Man, if, if we understand this, it's life-changing. It is truly life-changing. Now, if the Holy Spirit is gracious to us, we will find out what is the unique role of Jesus in his incarnation for each one of us. Who would like to read? For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now what does this tell us about Jesus? He was tempted. How was he tempted? In every way that you and I are. Now, I think um, you have to use the spirit of the text, not the letter of the text. Jesus was tempted in all of the essential ways that any human on this earth has ever been tempted. Maybe not in every little tiny particular. Like for example, Jesus was never married, he never produced a child, and he never produced a child that for example was born a quadriplegic and uh, a complete helpless uh, person that had no hope for ever being normal. Now do you think that is that a temptation or is that a test? I don't know. But people that have those life experiences, wow, you're facing, what, 20, 30, 40 years of dealing with something that would stretch and strain the strongest person. The Bible doesn't mean that Jesus had every tiny particularity that you and I face as temptations. It means, essentially, at the core, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Now, what else does it tell us about Jesus? He did not sin. Now, here's the interesting theological twisty. What do we confess Jesus being? What do we, con what do we confess him as? Son of God, God incarnate. But the Bible says that God cannot be tempted. But then it tells us that Jesus was. So, do we have a contradiction here? He was half, he was, okay, he was fully man and fully God, but he was a composite. Yeah. Okay. Symbol of um, God. What's the, um, the symbol, I always forget, Dr. Smith, for male? The arrow points up. Okay, so Jesus is one person but he has two natures. He has his divine nature and he has his human nature. So when the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, we find out here that God can't be tempted, so that means what by theological logic? Well, that you could come to that conclusion that Jesus, this, that this is a myth itself, that Jesus really isn't the God-man, or... Oh, I, I, now when you say, I'm not trying to be picky, when you say he gave up. Well, he allowed himself to be fully human and didn't use his God. Aha! Yes! Because if you are God, if you really are God, you can't cease being God, right? So when he gave up, what did he give up? Not being God, but he gave up the use the use of his own divine nature. In other words, he's still God, but he says, I'm just going to live in this realm. I'm not going to access my divine powers every time I get into trouble. 
Every time I need a miracle, every time I need something supernatural to happen, I'm not going to just dip into my own divine nature and pull it off. Well, then how did he do what he did? He allowed God to work through him. Yes. And he says this repeatedly, in depth, in great exquisite detail, that you can't miss it. John 14 through 16, over and over and over again, he says, I did not do these things. I did not teach these things. God working through me, I'm sorry, God working through me, this was still there but not used. So that means Jesus lived his human life how? By the grace of God, by the the power of God. Keep going because this is the aha moment. Yes, he had to trust God to do it through him. And this is pertinent and relevant. Why? Because it's, you could live the same way theoretically. Because here you are, you're not, you're not a God person. You're just, now I got to do this right. So we got males over here. And where's, what's the female? Oh, we'll just leave it that way because like Paul says, in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female, right? So we'll just, this is actually irrelevant. We'll just, this is human. If you're a Christian, what happens to you when you become a Christian? What's the clear teaching of the New Testament? Uh, Yes, not just the Holy Spirit, but the Father and Jesus. They all come to live inside of you. Now, it's not a one-to-one. It's not perfectly the same. But in effect, as close as it can be, given the fact that we're fallen creatures, you and I are in the same sort of situation that Jesus was in. He was a human, truly human, filled with filled with God. And what are you? You're a human being that has all of God living inside of you. Part of God? How about the old hymn? Well, it's not old, it's new. Um, we, want, we want more of you. Has anybody ever sung that? More of you? Why would you ask, God, the, the, the hymn, the song is implying what? That God has given you a sum of God, but if I could just give more of God, then... then I'd be okay. Now, if there's anything clear in the New Testament, it's that when you become a Christian, God puts all of God inside of you. You're never getting any more of God because if God gives you all of God that God can give to you, then it's almost an insult if you want to look at it this way. Actually, it's just innocent naivete to ask God, please give me more of you. When God tells you over and over and over again in the Bible, what? I've already done that. Why do you keep asking me the same thing over again? Now, if you have all of God living inside of you, then theoretically it's possible for a human being to do what? Let God control this area and this area and this area and this area. And then you, get, you start approximating to the state of consciousness and being that the New Testament talks about, which is called being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you get more of God. It means that at certain points in time, people let God have God's way completely, and to the extent that a human being can, you, you manifest, you realize, you allow God to do whatever God wants to do inside of you. And when that sort of thing starts happening, as you read the book of Acts, well, then what happens to the apostles? They became like Christ, like they do what? Physical healings, spiritual healings. They cast out fallen angels out of people. They teach with power like Jesus did. In fact, they do. In fact, you can look at the book of Acts as part two of the Jesus story, except now here he did it when he was in his first body, and now he's doing it in his second body. Who's his second body? You. You're the body of Christ. So he wants to do inside of us what he did in his first body. Okay, yes, Dr. Smith.
I can see why you would say that, but the master himself said in that sequence, John 14, 15, and 16, what did he say? awesome to have a child of a pastor in your class raised in the scriptures he knows yes Jesus himself said you guys are all preoccupied about what I did guess what you're going to do greater things than I did now does that diminish Christ or actually magnify him now here's the other old way of looking at the Christian life what we did was we took Jesus we put him up here, and this is what I call the Jesus card. Put that in your back pocket. And then every time you read stories about Jesus, and every time somebody talks about Jesus, you pull this card out and you say, oh yeah, the reason he could do that was, he was God. He was God. And entailed in it, now that's a half truth, but entailed in that is also your escape card. Because if Jesus is God and that's, that's how he did all these things, then the clear subtextual implication is what? He could resist temptation because he was God, but I'm not God. So I'm not God. So therefore, it's fun to read about this person, this great person that does all these great things. He defeats Satan. He goes through all these trials. He does all these miracles. He rises from the dead. It's great. You don't realize that when you exalt him that way, you're losing the impact that he has on your life because you're putting him up on such a pedestal that the distance grows between you and him and there's no way that you can close that gap. You see, you see that? So, yes, it seems like it's exalting him, but actually he wants to reverse that whole thing and show us that, wow, this really glorifies Christ. When human beings start letting Jesus rule and reign in them, and they start doing the works of Jesus in and through them, those human beings ought to know, and they should know, and they're taught over and over again, that what's the source of the things that they're doing? God. So, and then the human being is taught, you're supposed to say what? And not, not as some sort of fake humility. Oh, I'm nothing. You know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If some human being does a great work of Christ, and Christ works in and through them, what's the human being supposed to tell people? Praise God. Uh, praise God. I let God do this through me. The glory goes to God. So actually, this model causes the Lord Jesus Christ to be even more exalted. Because now we're telling people, no, Christ is alive. He's living in us. He's doing these things just like he did in his first body. And he can do that through you also. Yes, sir. Right. It's multiplied, yes. It's much more effective. I mean, I, did any of you watch that little Jesus of Nazareth by Franco Zeffirelli that's been replayed recently on TV? One of the great Jesus movies of all time. I mean, they do a very good job of showing Jesus walking and just being besieged by crowds. Just enthronged. And... Uh, just think about that. When he was in his first body, he could only deal with so many people at a time, right? He was localized. He was limited in that sense. But now, the system that he set up, if Christ lives in you and in you and in you and in you, you guys are all going to do something today, right? Mm -hmm. And wherever you go and whatever you do, the potentiality of Christ living in and through you is going to be a reality. And so now, Jesus has done what? Multiplied just like the fishes. Yes, Dan. John, another stumbling block. We have, we've been given all we need. The other analogy is that it enters this as a seed, and then there's a sanctification process where mm -hmm. it, has to, it has to grow. So I think, I think some of us get discouraged, me in particular, that if all of God is in me and, and I can't express it or use it in a mature form, and it's a seed, and I have to go through that sanctification process. Right. We become discouraged. We become doubtful. Your 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 drawing there was filling up, but that that is a process, right? Yes. Now, the the fact that you brought it up, I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages, and we'll look at this. First John three nine, Galatians four nineteen. 
This will offend somebody, but it's not my fault. It probably won't offend women, but men will have difficulty with it. First John 3 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. God's seed? Now, guess what the Greek word is? Sperma. Who is the seed? Jesus. This is what kind of imagery? It's sexual or reproductive. So Jesus is the seed. Well, now now that we know modern science, here's the little seed in the scientific model. What do you need, actually? What do we really need to have a baby? Now we know this. You, You need a little egg, right? This egg in the analogy here, is what? Yeah, yes, it's um, your uh, soul and your spirit. So Jesus comes to live inside of us, and when that happens, we get infused with God, but it's still in seed-like fashion. Now go to Galatians 4.19. What is supposed to happen at this point then? Following this reproductive analogy... My little children, how I am longing in the pangs of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here Paul is likening himself to a midwife and he's nurturing the little baby Christians and what does a midwife actually want to have happen? For the baby to come out. So Paul is saying, I'm... I'm midwifing you, and I am sharing in. Is anybody a midwife here? You've delivered a lot of babies. Did you agonize with the women? (laughs) Just coldly dispassionate, huh? Like (laughs) you wanted to get it out. I mean, did you have? Were you so clinical and drilled into it that you didn't really? I didn't get emotional until they became a dad. Okay. All right. So there's a physician's one physician's experience. I have a, a friend uh, who lives out in Wooster. She's a Mennonite, and she's a doula. What's a doula? She delivers babies. They do it naturally at home. And uh, now, maybe it's because she's bypassed the medical thing and is just into the existential thing, but she tells me that like it's like agony going through the birth process with these women and she gets like so fused with them that it's almost like what? And she's having the baby too. So Paul is the midwife. He's the apostle. He's agonizing. Ag- agonizing. And what's he hoping that's going to happen? That this seed that's been planted in him will do what? Grow. And so then, and then eventually Christ will be fully formed. That means that the person will be not identical, but very strong, similar to Jesus. So Dan, yes, you are right. It's a process. And if you really want to get rid of your frustration, then you just have to look at it and say, what would be the point of saying to a three-month-old baby, come out, come on, hurry it up. It's not fully formed. So, I mean, you know, this is, of course, dictated by the, by the laws of biology. Uh, a normal pregnancy is roughly nine months. What's the rough estimation for how long it takes for Christ to be fully formed in a person? Yeah, and yet to come. It's, it's forever and ever and ever. But the New Testament does say that it's possible in this lifetime to be what is called mature, to be regularly fully formed and letting Christ live in and through you. Yes, sir. Okay. 
He's sitting back there. All right, well, thank you for that word of exhortation there. <laughs> now, we've got all that set up, so uh, I want you to drop down to Matthew 4.11. I'm again, like I told you, with time, you'll have to look up a lot of these. 4.11 and Hebrews 1.14 in the first big box, down at the bottom, Matthew 4.11. After the temptation was over, Jesus' temptation. What does it say happened? Angels came and ministered. And that Greek word is just the typical word where we get served. It's the core word for deacon. Any deacons in here? You guys have deacons, right? Yeah. None here? A lot of you have, yes. So what's a deacon? Servant. A servant, somebody that serves other people, serves their needs. So after the temptation of Jesus is over, good angels come and do what? Now, here's the question. Why would God need the assistance and ministry of angels. He doesn't, but man does. God doesn't. Man or humans do. Jesus is functioning as a human. So in his humanity, after 40 days of fasting and this rigorous testing to do evil that's been put upon him by Satan himself, he is spiritually, emotionally, physically at the snapping point and God chooses at that point to do what? To assist him with the services and help of angels. Now just let that drop down into your consciousness and then ask the, the following question. Well, if the master needed the assistance of angels, then is it a big stretch that we would need them? All right, now go over to Hebrews 1.14. And this is a standard text that covers all of us, covers the whole situation. What does the writer say here that angels do? What's their function? All right, who's the, who are those that are going to inherit salvation? All of you. So it says clearly what? The angels do what? Good angels do what? They help you. They assist you. They minister to you, sometimes very subtly and in ways that don't draw attention to themselves. They don't want the attention on themselves because why? They want you to have your attention focused on God. Now, of course, the evil angels, they have their own form of ministry. And what's that called? Temptation. Temptation. So their task is to tempt, seduce, trick, schnooker, um, deceive, human beings and actually take them away from God, these angels are designed to help us come back. Now that's quite a supernatural worldview, isn't it? This is the, the view of the Bible. So flat out from the Christian point of view is you've got God living inside of you, plus you're surrounded by angels, both good and evil, each of them working their strategies to either assist you in your journey or deter you in your journey. Now, what if that turned out to be true? How would that make you feel? Think about that. How does that make you feel? Oh, 
Okay, it would check your steps, make you be a little bit more alert maybe on what's going on. What, Yeah, uh, what's good and what's bad. We've learned what's good and what's bad, and uh, so how's that? Not just our consciousness. Your mind. When when the famous Shema, the saying that the Jews regarded as their creedal statement, Deuteronomy six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God, how? Heart, mind, soul. Everything, every constituent element that makes us human is to be engaged in the love of God. Yes. John, wouldn't it, wouldn't it take us out of the picture and we'd feel like a puppet being st strung on strings, pulled in one direction and then pulled in the other direction? It would be if you didn't take into account Dr. Smith's question. We also are creatures made in the image of God. So we have wills and choices and minds and the ability to make uh, moral choices. So remember, uh, those of you who are old enough, I, remember, I know you'll remember this, there was a comic named Flip Wilson who was very popular in about the 70s and maybe early 80s. Famous most of all for the devil, the devil made me do it. Really? No, devils don't make anybody do anything, and angels don't make anyone do anything. What they do is take these creatures called humans, made in the image of God, that have minds and hearts and souls, and they influence, they, they put influence on us, but we still have to do what? avail ourselves and choose to which way are we going to follow. In fact, it, you guys know the temptation story of Jesus well enough. He's out in the wilderness. What actually happens to him out there? What, as the report is given, what happens to him? Satan does what? Puts into his mind, into his heart, certain propositions certain statements, certain constructs. He puts them in the mind of Jesus. Like, what's one of them? Ah, he took him up to, the, to this uh, mountaintop, and he showed, obviously this is a vision, it's not literal. And he showed him what? It says the whole world. And he said to Jesus, uh, this has been given to me, and I have the power to give it to anyone I want to. And so therefore, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all of this. The whole world. Total control. That's a temptation. I mean, just think of what would happen if you got taken to Las Vegas and somebody told you, you can have all of this. <laughs> See, for some of you, it wouldn't be a temptation. But think why, about that. Why then did uh, Jesus um, deal with the temptation by saying, getting behind, get behind me, Satan. Why didn't he call upon the angels and why didn't the angels intercede earlier? Because, and it can't be because God didn't know what was gonna happen. But, if you would look at the last verse of Luke chapter two, this will help us understand the, the experience that Jesus had as a human. And that text says, and the child grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and humans. He's speaking about Jesus. That means Jesus started off, do you think Jesus sprang from the womb and quoted Isaiah 7.14? I mean, didn't Joseph have to sit down with Jesus in their little sand uh, box and say, Jesus, here's Aleph. That's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus, this is bait. Well, he actually would have said Yeshua. Yeshua, bait. It just so happens that if you put Aleph and bait together, you get Av, and that's the core word for father. 
So Jesus probably learned his first word, Av, and have you ever heard of Jewish kids calling their dads? Abba, 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 Abba. That's, that's daddy. So did Jesus learn how to read? To learn how to read, you have to learn what? The alphabet. Then he learned how to read, and then the... John, another, another way I heard this explained, temptation is kind of a spiritual term, but uh, contentment would be the human emotion that, that allows us to sin. When, when we are not content or discontent, like I wasn't, yeah, that, the, the temptation causes the discontent, yes. My battery's dead. How do you say um, human, ah, uh, human combat? Hand-to-hand -hand combat. Jesus had to face the ruler of this world and defeat him before he could go on to the next stage. And that was part of his development as a human being. Crucial. Yes. Did Jesus did, make mistakes? Did he make mistakes like us and... and I'm kind of confused because I feel like just a crummy human sort of who's <laughs> and, and it, it seems, you know, I mean, I'm confused. <laughs> I mean, as he was growing into... As a human... Like that? I mean, is a, a human, did he stub his toe and say the wrong thing? Did he but punch somebody in the nose? Doing there, did he stub his toe? <laughs> yeah. Did Jesus ever, when working in the carpenter shop, did he ever So he truly was know, human. It is, sin is, is not equate to, equated to be human. You say you feel like a crummy human. Why don't you look at it this way? I am merely a human. I'm a little uh, carbon-based life form, and even though I'm not much in myself, God tells me what about me? I'm made in God's image, and I am worth the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He died for you. So that means you're actually a lot more important than you think you are, but being human, being finite, means, of course, you're going to make mistakes. Sure. But there's a difference between making a mistake and doing what? Blatantly, willfully. Oh, before you guys go, I've got to show you this text. Uh, James 4, 7. This, this, gets, this text right here gets right at the core of it. You'll get there, and you'll find the text says... Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Say no. Is that right? Am I got the right verse, Jack? Submit yourself to God. 
say no or resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. Now you see, he's taking this holistically. He's saying all temptation, even though if it comes from a minor angel, is still under the rubric of Satan's temptation. And God also is at work in our lives. So what does James say the solution to this whole thing? Here you are, human. What's your, what's your task? Yeah, well, first, before you resist, submit or say yes to God. And then, in the process of saying yes to God, is of course you are going to at times have to do what? Say no to the devil. And if you do that, if you say yes to God and no to Satan, just like in the Jesus story, what happens at the end of his temptation? He leaves, it says for a season. Yes, be content with what you have at the time. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you reverse these two? Can you say no to God? Can a Christian say no to God? Can, by implication, if you say no to God, you may not get down on your knees and pray to Satan, but if you say no to God and you say no to God on a repeated basis in a certain area, inevitably what's going to happen? You're going to wind up in some way, form, or fashion saying yes to Satan, even if you don't do it blatantly. If you do that, now what's the corollary, the logic corollary? If you say yes to God and no to Satan, Satan will flee. If you say no to God and yes to Satan, then what? No, God won't flee. Because God has promised us what? I will be with you always until the end of the age. No, it's not that God will flee from you that Satan will do what? Draw closer to you. The more you say yes to Satan, the closer Satan will come. Now, why you need to know that is if you would now look on the handout and find page demons have on human beings. These are the stages. These are the stages. And so it goes from mild to wild. Mild is just being tempted, which I can guarantee you some of you will be tempted today. But it goes all the way from mild temptation all the way down to the bottom, which is called inhabitation. And by the way, what did the master spend a lot of his time when he was on earth, here on earth doing? Casting out evil angels out of human beings. That's the spectrum. Yes. Well, um, uh, I will just make a 30-second comment on this, and then you'll be even more offended, and then you can go to church and make up for it. It depends on what you mean by swearing. The Bible... Okay, now... And it also depends on what you mean by taking God's name in vain. In the Bible, it means don't use God's name for an empty purpose. So it's swearing or using God's name in vain is more than shouting out, gee, diet, when your ball starts sailing into the woods. It can also be just referring to God in a blatantly empty and vain way. So it's not just the letter of the law, it's how you even talk about God, generally speaking, that you could demean God's existence. But you know, actually the Bible doesn't give you a list of little swear words that says you should never say that, and if you do, this is bad. In fact, even in Philippians 3, Paul uses a, a word uh, that we commonly consider to be a swear word. And it starts with S. And he goes, S. 
could say it in German and no one would be offended. Scheit. <laughs> caca. All right, let me ask you a question. If a little kid says, ah, that's caca, and then another kid says, that's shite, most people will say to the kid when he says shite, what? Don't say that, it's a dirty word. But caca, it's cute. This is referring to the same thing. Paul uses this word, scubala, in Philippians chapter 3, and he says, all things that were to gain to me, and whatever I could have gained out of this world compared to what I have in Christ is scubala. Guess what scubala means? Yes, oh, turd is okay, right? You turd? I hear people say that all the time. You say, you piece of, and now you're swearing. So, I mean, I don't, what the Bible really says is that what comes out of your mouth ought to be pleasing and edifying and lead people to Christ. There may be some occasions that it might lead somebody to Christ if you say, that's shite. And then in that case, it wouldn't be swearing. And that goes for the whole range of words. So um, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I sh yes. Actually, Joanne will help you. All right, God bless you. Have a great week. Sorry we didn't get more done. I hope this study guide is helpful. And uh, next week we'll study the uh, passion of Christ.